Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. Oh, what up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. The show where theology matters. Yeah, that's right. My name is Caleb Hay, and with me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hi, Caleb. Shalom. How's it going, brother? It's going well. And let's not... Had... Go ahead. Oh, I was just... No, I'll hold off. Oh, I was going to say, let's not forget our, our special guest, my father, Tim Hegg. How's it going, Dad? Uh... Hey, here I am. Glad Woo-hoo! to be here. Yeah. All right. So what's going on, Rob? Well, I was going to say that I had one little... I, I've been learning the art of making artisan bread at home oh, ooh, you know yeah. like the little loaves that have the real thick crust and you dip them in olive oil and balsamic vinegar with all sorts of like good stuff in there yeah i had one little packet of yeast left and i'm like okay today's the day <laughs> so i've got i i this morning i was in the kitchen and i got i used the last bit of my yeast and it's up there it rises for like two hours then i break it into two and i bake it and so we'll, we'll enjoy some last little bit of uh, uh, leaven that I was able to find. Nice. That's <laughs> right. It is, it is the Passover season, which is exactly why we have my father on today. Uh, every year, at least for the past, what, two years now? For the, every, I, th- I believe it's every season that we've had now. We've had my dad come on and talk about the Passion Chronology or the Passion Week. And, of course, when we say the Passion Week, we were referencing Yeshua's... Uh, Last Supper and the chronology of his death and resurrection. And there's all sorts of of, uh, uh, questions that surround all these kind of things. However, there's some things we need to get to first. Now, first of of all, last week, show 120, we talked about Rico Cortez and uh, this interview he did with uh, this guy from Israel, Alaro. And so a couple of things need to be cleared up, and, and we'll bring my dad in on this too. But first of all, Amy says, my brothers, you are wrong regarding Rico and his website. There are many teachings that, that can be read and listened to for free of charge. Okay. Uh, yes, I agree with this. There's a whole article section that he has on his page that has to do with uh, uh, free articles. But the articles that I was trying to look at was his view of the Messiah. So uh, he says that he's the messenger of the covenant. And so I was confused on exactly what Rico's view of Yeshua was. Because basically I was trying to figure out, does, Yeshua, does Rico Cortez proclaim that Yeshua is yod heh I actually believe he does. So, uh, But the articles that I was trying to read on his website in regards to that you had to pay. And I was wrong, actually. I made a, a, mis, uh, a misstep there, too, because I said it was $10 a month on Rico's site, just to give him a fair shake. On Rico's site, it's $10 per year to be able to read his articles. So uh, thank you, Amy, for clearing that up. Uh, we appreciate it. 
Uh, also, then um, we had, and this is where we'll bring my dad in. My dad, when I was in high school, my my father uh, taught the Sunday school class I was in at the Sunday church we went to, and he did a whole series on music, which was rather interesting. So he had all the kids bring in the music that they listened to, and uh, of course, I think I brought in some classical CDs. I was smart enough not to bring in, uh, you know, the stash of <laughs> CDs that I had, but some kids brought in everything from Nine Inch Nails to uh, to uh, you know the Beach Boys. And so my dad then went through and uh, and looked at every single one of these and read the words and all these kind of things. So last week uh, we had a, a Hoff goes off moment and we played the uh, the, <laughs> the famous Hoff goes off music. And actually, I should have had that queued up. I apologize. I'll look for it anyway. Uh, so uh, so we played now the music that we had was written, <laughs> produced, and performed by none other than the Hoff. And uh, so this this uh, lady, Rivka, she says, we can do without the demonic music. It's not even funny, guys. Take away the it takes away the believability and truth of your vids. Uh, So I wrote back and I said, uh, "Okay, well, while we're talking about it, what exactly makes music demonic? And she wrote back and she said certain tones and frequencies you should do some research on it sometime. Thank you very much for that. There are certain tones and frequencies that heal and rejuvenate, and certain ones that tear down and, and cause decay. Makes sense. Good frequencies equals yod heh vav equals creation. Def- destructive frequencies equals ha Satin equals decay and death. And then Is that she, gematria? I, I guess so. I, I don't uh, yes I I would assume so uh, but then she gives this uh, this website link uh, normally I don't allow uh, links on my uh, <laughs> on my YouTube page however this one was just so good uh, I I left it up there it's called InsideRockMusic.com and uh, oh boy it's a doozy uh, I don't think the internet was around in 1975. However, if it were, uh, then I would say that 1975 called They Want Their Website Back. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, to say the least. So let's talk about this for just a second. Dad, weigh in on this. What do you think? Is there, should, we, should we see like this? I know we have screamo music now as like a thing. You know, and like screamo, yeah, screamo music, like where 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 the singer doesn't sing, he screams instead. And, and there's like, you know, uh, like... I don't know. I think that's what the my Hoff goes off theme is. Yes, is, is, yes, it's 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 uh, made after that style of music, uh, hard rock. I don't know what would you, what would you call like? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so is is this kind of music demonic? Well, our position is we go back to the scriptures. Did they have music uh, at the time of the scriptures being written? Absolutely. There was all kinds of music, and there was music that was played. Uh, and uh, so forth in pagan uh, surroundings and pagan temples. Uh, and there was music, of course, that was played in the tabernacle and as well as in the, the, the temples. So if there were a demonic uh, aspect to certain frequencies, then you would have to believe that in the progressive revelation of the scriptures, we would be warned about if those frequencies are uh, whatever. But when... Uh, when I was in college as a music major, 
uh, I had to write a paper uh, for uh, one of the classes I was in, and I had read um, or heard, I guess more or less, something by from the um, basic youth conflicts um, that put out saying that they went to a concerts and they rec- they watched when the music got loud or when it got uh, when the rhythm was was very heavy. It was close to the heartbeat and so on and so on. And they recognized that it caused the people to do things that they weren't doing before. And so they came to the conclusion. Wait, 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 that, would, that, would that be called dancing? Well, they said that you know, uh, even even non what we might call non ethical issues, like when certain music came on, everybody went to get food. When certain music came on, everybody went, you know, or more people went to the restroom. Um, you know, those kinds of things. So they're saying that they were they were saying that music could stimulate something within you, and unbeknownst to yourself, you're being controlled by the frequency of the music and by the beat of the music. Now. Without getting too technical here, what is music? Music is tone put against rhythm. Okay? That's the general view of, of music. Okay? Is there any, th- any indication that certain frequencies are better than others? Absolutely not. Now, we know that very high frequencies hurt our ears. Sometimes very low frequencies hurt our ears, etc., etc. Israel has uh, Israeli forces have dem- uh, have experimented with guns that were made uh, that are a frequency gun and so forth and so on. There's no doubt that certain frequencies are more uh, likable than others. But is there anything demonic about it? No. The answer is no. And if it were, then you would have to say, well, are the high strings on a violin worse than the lowest note on a tuba uh, or, or on a double bass and so forth and so on? No. What makes music sacred or that is worshipful or able to be given glory to God is first and foremost, the words, if there are words that go with it. And secondly is the context in which it is, in which it is played. You know, you can have a Beethoven symphony played in a situation where everybody's on drugs and, and everybody's doing whatever. And it it can be a very terrible situation. Okay. On the other hand, you could play a Sousa March and you wouldn't play the Sousa March at the beginning of your, time uh, your your worship time together as a community unless of course you're all part of a military <laughs> contingency and a Sousa mar- so the point that i'm making is this there's absolutely nothing in the scriptures that would indicate that sound by itself is demonic or that rhythm is demonic and all of this is very socially controlled as many of you may know bach johann sebastian bach who uh, was a believer, who uh, regularly penned on his music uh, 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 Sola Gloria and for, for, the, for the glory of God alone, and, and so forth. Uh, and he was dismissed from Geneva for having played something, on, uh, written something for a cantata in 2-4 in rather than 3-4. And the reason was... Wow. Is, and the reason was because the powers that be determined that music that was in 3-4 extolled the Trinity. Music that was in 2-4, two, two beats to the measure, uh, was somehow undermining the, the, the Trinity. Wow. And so like numerology, there's, there's like a, <laughs> yeah. a numerology. The gematria. Tim, I appreciate, I appreciate what your point is. And, and to take it back to our tongue-in-cheek you know, tone that we knowingly take uh, at you know in the Robin Caleb show, we're 
definitely not trying to encourage people to listen to music that is ungodly or anything like that. Our, we, we just, we're not going to take ourselves so Too seriously. seriously. We, yeah. <laughs> we want to allow people to laugh a little bit and lighten up a little bit. And I think with, with a little bit of, uh, you know, of that uh, lightheartedness, we can uh, just kind of let go of some of this, this seriousness out there. I think people are getting too serious about things, and they're, sadly, they're the wrong things to be serious about. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think one of the things that we're trying to do in terms of what's the context of, of some of the music we little sound bites we play is is that it's the context of we're going to laugh our laugh at it's not because we don't take our point the the theological and doctrinal points that we want to make we're not uh budging on those but we're also going to have a little bit of fun around the edges and and uh because i think that's important well when yeah. when, it, when it comes to to what Rivka's comments and even this whole website now i read some of this website that uh, that she sent over uh, you know, they don't reference anything in the Bible about tones, uh, you know, obviously, because there's nothing there. And so I have to go back to exactly what you said, Dad, at the beginning, which is show me in the Bible where it says that. You can't just say that something is wrong. Show me in the Bible where it says that it's wrong. And when it comes to frequency and uh, that kind of thing being demonic, Tarifka, I think I would just uh, have to say... Yeah, well... You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Okay, let's move on. So wait, I have I have one more comment. Okay, go for okay. it. Okay, um, you know it 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 talks about that if we're if we're not uh, extolling love as God intends, that we can be like a uh, for instance in First Corinthians thirteen one. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with a gong or cymbals. They use them in the music in the, in the Mediterranean area, obviously, and that spread throughout the world. But what's the point? It's a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal being struck when it's not appropriate. So it's not talking to us about, because it says, for instance, in Nehemiah, it says that they, de- uh, they dedicated the walls of Jerusalem with thanksgiving and with songs, to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So there's nothing wrong with cymbals. It's just that, you know, if the cymbal player happens to play a huge cymbal clash right in a soft portion, of, <laughs> you know, that's the wrong thing. It's the wrong time. Or if someone comes up to your ear when you're, when you're just sitting, yeah. enjoying yeah. a, you know, a beautiful landscape or something, and they... Yeah, bang. <laughs> yeah. See, see, the question, the question that I would have... The question I would ask these people is, could you give me a chart telling me where the frequency changes from glorifying God to uh, uh, being demonic? In other words, is it a 0. 0.05 uh, in- increment? You know, is A440 the most holy? <laughs> you know? Right. right. <clears throat> and then, yeah. So, uh, Tim, you also made a comment about how we are culturally conditioned. We're, we're set up with preferences you know the music that kind of impresses us in our youth in certain impressionable years tends to we build some preferences and i i uh, every semester i'm invited uh, over to moody spokane and i give a, a three-hour lecture on the bible and music and i play them uh some middle eastern uh christian chanting of psalms like it's in arabic but it's the psalms 
and then I'll play them like a Sephardic singing of the of the Shema, a canting of the Shema, and invariably the cloud the 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 crowd the the cl- the students laugh when they hear some of the sounds. Like uh, particularly the Sephardic at the end of Echad, at the end of Shema, it's Echad, right? There's this drawing out of the Echad, it goes really high, and then it's this big duh, because they want to pronounce the Dalit really loud. Well, it, every time you get these little giggles, because that's not done. You don't sing that way, right? It, 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 but if to the Sephardic Jew, this is a very it, significant, there's even midrashic significance to the drawing out of the Echad, etc., mm-hmm. and the Dalit. So um, that's just one example of how our expectations that we grow with, up with and the limited worlds that we inhabit sometimes conflict with other worlds. And that can be from generation to generation or it can be just cross-culturally. Right. Very good. Yeah, I, uh, I would just say to uh, people who uh, get us onto music, especially when my dad's on, we got uh, three musicians. <laughs> three musicians that, uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, with that all being said, I think it can only be time for one more specific thing. I was going to joke. It's Two musicians and a guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> all right, go for it, Rob. What do you got? Okay, this is show number 121. Ooh. Uh, and we have some important gematria <laughs> to, to consider yes. while we listen to today's, shoot, today's okay. show. Let the first is Anu Anu Ohavim, and Anu is a contraction of Anafu, so Anu Ohavim, we love. Here's another one, Echad Eloheinu. If mm. you spell Eloheinu, if we spell it fully, Aleph Lamed Vav, hey, Yod Nun Vav, Echad Eloheinu, is is one twenty one. Here's another good one that might be fitting for Passover. Passover, Yayin Edom, red wine. Mm, Yayin Edom, four of adds them. up to one twenty one. Here's my favorite. Well, there's some others like Nineveh. You know, is a good one. But here's <laughs> another one, Mazel Tale, which is, I means the constellation of Aries, which is uh, probably where we are probably in the in in Aries right now in in Mazel Tale. Ooh. So, uh, I'm just gonna leave that for our listeners to ponder, mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna tell you how to interpret that. I'm just here with the facts. Yes, the Gematria facts. And that's it? That's it for Argamatria? All right, here we go. You're a legend in your own mind. Your mom goes to college. I think that view is headed for a deep mischief. Okay, so it's Passover, which means that uh, obviously Christians and Messianics alike will be throwing things at each other and having huge knockdown battles over uh, the chronology of the Lord's uh, death, resurrection, and, of course, whether or not his Last Supper was, in fact, a Passover Seder or not. Now, last year, we took about five or six clips from uh, Zach Bauer over at New to Torah, and we had my, uh, and he has a video on why the Last Supper is not a Passover Seder. My father then responded to every single one of the uh, sound clips that we had. So this year... I decided to leave Zach alone and uh, go on a completely different, uh, a completely different vein. Actually, it's not that different. I shouldn't say that. So uh, I, I pulled a couple of clips. Now, I'm, 
the interesting thing about this is that as I bu- as I listened and built these up, uh, a lot of them spoke to the same uh, the same uh, issues. So I have multiple clips on these, and I don't know if we should play them in a row and then let the you know talk about them, or if we should play them all at once and uh, whatnot. Okay, so let's start with this one. Uh, and some of these are going to be uh, keep in mind. Some of these will be review for those who listened last year and the year before. Um, and, but that's okay, because I think it's important to uh, review some of these things. Okay, so the first clip I have is from um, Ari Rosenberg. He is a reform rabbi, uh, and uh, I certainly can tell you that I don't believe he's ever studied Greek. However, uh, he, he has been to rabbinical school. And uh, so he's going to talk about uh, why he, he has several different reasons why he believes that uh, uh, this, the, the Passover Seder, or that uh, the Last Supper, rather, was not a Passover Seder. And okay, so, pa- first, first, go for it, Caleb, yes. real quick. First off, I, now, I haven't heard these. Tim, you haven't heard these, right? No, I have not. These, these are all new. Okay, so this is all fresh. Tim and I, this is fresh. Did you say he's a, a reform? Yes, Rabbi. So he's he's not a believer in Yeshua, but he has a he has a dog in the race, I guess. Uh, yes, and actually, you know, I, I I believe that he's ultra reform. I could be wrong about that. Um, okay, okay, I just wondered. However, uh, you know, I don't know, really know his his background or, uh, yeah, I I I just found I found his teaching uh, from last year during Passover. I think it was last year. It might even be this year. But uh, anyway, it's in the show notes for those who would like to go back. And uh, listen to Ari Rosenberg. Okay, so uh, let me make sure this is the right clip. Okay, here we go. I can assure you that the Last Supper definitely was not a Passover Seder. And I'll tell you why. First of all, in the Christian scriptures themselves, the Gospel of John states quite clearly in chapter 19 that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation before Passover. Now, anyone who has ever hosted a Passover Seder knows that the day of preparation is spent getting the table set with all the dishes, cooking enough food to host an army, doing with anyone who dares to step foot in the kitchen. Now, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to deduce that if Jesus were crucified on the day of preparation, then the Last Supper had to be the day before the day of preparation, in other words, two days before the Passover Seder. Okay, so this is obviously a softball underhand over the plate for my father to uh, then try to knock out of the park here. But this is a, a common... Uh, obviously, we have some, some differences between the book of John and the three synoptic Gospels, so why don't we clear that up in the beginning so we know where you're coming from, Dad? Oh, well, I don't think there's any differences at all between John and the synoptics. I think it is read that way, uh, and I think it prim- primarily is because we're not uh, expecting on the first hand. We should expect that John and the synoptics are in concert with one another. John more than likely had at least uh, a good understanding of the synoptic gospels uh, by the time he wrote his gospel, if in fact we date it after the destruction of the temple, which most scholars do, not all, but, but many do. Um, uh, the, the simple point is, is that. And I'll cut to the chase. There are two preparation days. In, in the Gospels, the, uh, the disciples come to Yeshua, and they say, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? To prepare the Pesach. 
And he says, go into the city, you know the story, go into the city and you'll see, find this man, talk with him, so forth and so on. And he'll and tell him that the teacher needs the, uh, the, uh, the room for his, his Seder. So that's a preparation day. That's when, the pa- that's when the disciples are doing this, okay? Well, then it says in the Gospels, when he was on the cross, so this is after he's eaten the Passover, after he's gone across the brook uh, Kidron and, and, uh, and over to the Mount of Olives, and they come and they get him in the morning, they take him to the Praetorium. Uh, okay, so you get, you, you, you know, and he's on the cross, and it says they wanted to get him down off the cross, and they wanted to do it because it was a preparation day for the Sabbath. Now is so, that no no uh, what, so where that are the we, bodies would not remain on are, the cross? Are we in? We're uh, in John at this point, right? We're in John at this point. You have it in the Gospels in the Synoptics too okay. that it was a preparation day while he was on the cross. Okay, so you have two preparation days in a row. You have a preparation day for Friday, which is the first day of un, the fifteenth. I should say it's the first day of the seven days of Pesach, which is a Sabbath. Okay. So Thursday is a preparation day for the Sabbath festival, or the festival Sabbath, and Friday is the preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. You have two preparation days in a row, and that's why people get confused. And this is why this uh, Ari Rosenberg uh, apparently doesn't hasn't studied the, the Gospels uh, clearly because he would otherwise realize that there are two preparation days. Uh, so, you know, and by the way, the only time you can have two preparation days <laughs> Is if one of them is Thursday and one of them is Friday. That's the only time you have two preparation days coming together, ever. Okay, so then let me throw a wrench. I'll play devil's advocate uh, during uh, this episode. And on the twist of a word, everything changes. Uh, so can you really say that the, that the uh, I don't know, what, what should we call them? The rabbis, the sages, the, uh, the, the, the powers that would be to put Yeshua to death. Now... We know that it was Rome who put him to death, right? But would the mm-hmm. would the uh, would the Ju- the Jewish authorities actually kill Sanhedrin, some? Yeah. yeah, the Sanhedrin would they actually kill someone and put someone to death on the high holy day of of Passover? Well, the point simply is is that if you had been there and you hadn't been on the inside, who was on the inside? The Sanhedrin was on the inside, okay, but the rest of the people weren't on the inside. So if they if if Rome takes a Jewish person and 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 uh, executes him on the first day of your feast, okay, Rome doesn't care. Now some would say, well, they didn't want to riot. Okay, granted, they didn't want to riot, but they had already, according to the Gospels, they had all uh, the the Jewish leaders had already ramped up the people, so they were chanting, "Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him!" So the the there was a large voice of people saying, "Get rid of this guy." And when Rome said, "Yeah, we agree," because he is a threat to the Caesar, he's a threat to the local governor because he's calling himself uh, uh, the ruler of the Jews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what is more. He even said he was going to destroy the temple. So we have plenty of proof to put him, uh, to execute him. And so Rome executes him. The Sanhedrin has their hands clean from the whole thing. And, uh, and so, so in other words, so in other words, Hey, we didn't crucify, we didn't do anything on the Shabbat. Rome did that. Absolutely. Okay. I I get what you're saying. Okay. Well, that was an easy one. Let's, let's move on. I think this is going to be a fun, uh, a fun little trip here uh, down some some 
It's different clips. Okay, so uh, let's go to uh, someone everyone knows, Tovia Singer. What does Tovia Singer say about the Gospel of John? Okay, hang on just a second. I want to make sure uh, I'm checking to see someone in the chat room says that they're not getting audio, but other people are. Okay, so we're, gonna, we're just going to keep going. So Tovia Singer, now before you respond to this, Tovia Singer says that John, the Gospel of John is now trying to, uh, is now trying to uh, place Yeshua as the Lamb of God. Now, I got two other things, two, two other clips or two other things I want to I put it forward here. So we have a question from Clint that came in. Uh, and he, he puts the question like this. How are we to understand Yeshua's fulfillment of the Passover lamb? Many Messianic object to Yeshua having a Passover Seder solely based on him being the Passover lamb. The reasoning is, since Yeshua is the Passover lamb, he therefore must be crucified at the same time as the lambs are being killed. Now, before you respond to that, let's go to Steve Berkson. Steve Berkson, uh, this is a, a, a teaching from Steve Berkson. This is during a Q&A that he did and uh, it, during the Q&A, he addresses the question, was the Last Supper a Passover Seder? Here we go. By the way, I like this guy because he sounds like the uh, comedian Carlin. Uh, you know, Carlin? <laughs> Okay. Well, 
I I uh, I don't know, Rob. You want me to start this? <laughs> sure. Okay. I, I just uh, I, I just wrote down that line. You can't be the meal and eat the meal. That's kind of like have your cake and eat it too. Is that okay. an ISO? Should we ISO that? I'll, I'll ISO that. Okay, go for it. Keep going. Okay, so everybody uh, that is taking this position has the idea that there's a lamb that is slaughtered, that then roasted, and then the meat from that lamb is eaten at the beginning of Passover or the beginning of the 15th or the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th of the month, and that that's it. That's what you eat. That's the meat you eat. All right. So, for instance, and this is where the, I'm just going to give you two verses that is the crux of this. John 18, 28. Then they led Yeshua from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early. So we know it's the morning after he had eaten the evening before what, uh, what we have in the Gospels. He had eaten this meal together with his disciples. And it says they led him into the Praetorium, and it was early praetorium and it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the passover now who are the they if they came from caiaphas's house we have the we have uh, every reason to believe that at least some of them were priests all right and we recognize that the priests were the ones caiaphas uh being i think at this point an honorary kind of uh uh, retired, but still very much part of the deciding factor in terms of the priestly uh, issues. And so uh, they might eat the Passover. Now, let's collate that with Deuteronomy 16, verse 2. This is uh, part of the Torah commandments regarding the Passover. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord, to Adonai your God, from the flock and the herd, in the place where Adonai chooses to establish his name. What do you mean? From the flock and from the herd. Okay? So, w- w- what we see here is that um, it's not talking just about one sacrifice. The lamb is from the flock. All right? And uh, so, what is the herd? Well, if you read the whole Torah uh, injunctions with regard to the week of Pesach, you know that every day of the Pesach week, there are sacrifices given, extra sacrifices every day. Some of those are from the flock and others are from the herd. Did the priests have the right to take some of that and eat it? Yes, they did. These were like fellowship offerings. Okay, so... From everything that we can see, the priests who were on duty and, again, we're, we're, we have limited uh, historical data, but it would only make sense that there would be a, a great number of priests on duty during the week of Pesach, particularly at the beginning of the week, because there were so many lambs that needed to be slaughtered in the temple and then taken and, and roasted uh, for the meal. That, that meant that these many, many, many uh, priests who were on duty were also getting paid, as it were, by the food that they would take from the sacrifices throughout the week. So, it's both and. Did Yeshua and his disciples eat a Passover meal? Absolutely. What was it then that those who were with Caiaphas said they did not want to enter the Praetorium, which would make them unclean, because there were times in the Praetorium where they actually executed people there, 
or at least they shed blood there, and so forth and so on. And besides that, it was ruled and controlled by Gentiles, and so it was presumed that the that there was uncleanness there. They didn't want to go there and become defiled. If they had been defiled by any kind of corpse, it would have knocked them out of any uh, service for the whole week. Okay, so let me so, uh, let, let me let, let me recap and see if I can condense what you just said and, and if I got it right. So what you're saying is they didn't want to go into the crematorium because uh, the the continued sacrifices throughout the Passover week were still con- were still referred to as the Passover. It must be because in Deuteronomy sixteen two it says you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock. And, and right, and if you continue on to verse three. Uh, you shall eat it for seven days. Yeah. And you shall eat right. the Pesach. So, right. so yeah, there's the language. The it, the, it, the, it, the it must refer to the Passover in the previous verse. Another point is here, Tim. Talk a little bit about the logistics of the, a throng of pious Jews who've come from all over the land and presumably from the diaspora to Yerushalayim to select a lamb, etc., and to have it uh, slaughtered and roasted so that they could eat it. Is everybody everybody simultaneously eating the same meal? Yeah, well, (laughs) it's... yeah, it's it's interesting because you know, as you know, even the Mishnah deal, tries to figure out how to how to do this, and they come up with a very ingenious way of having three hundred priests acting at the same time. Uh, you know, so you know the, the logistics are. Uh, Josephus tells us that the Brook Kidron ran as though it were a river of blood or a, uh, water of blood, and he even says up to the bridles of the horses. So he's trying to use a a depth of blood that uh, is typical by way of a metaphor. So there was so much uh, going on. Uh, um, so you're right. Um, but let, let me say one more thing. The idea that Yeshua has to be crucified at the same time that the Passover lamb, the ones that people were going to eat, uh, has to be crucified at the same time in order to be the Passover lamb, then what do we do about Yom Kippur? Was Yeshua not the sacrifice of the Yom Kippur? The writer to the Hebrews thinks he was. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't even consider Passover as the primary holiday. He's talking about Yom Kippur. He's talking about when the high priest goes into the most holy place. And he says that this is all about Yeshua. Well, how could Yeshua be the sacrifice as well as the intercessory priest when he was crucified at the week of Passover and not during the week, during the time of Yom Kippur? The idea that you have to have at the same time in order to work isn't the case at all. So, uh, you know, uh, and I think, of course, this informs when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's talking about the blood of grapes, and he's talking about his flesh as that which was the Passover lamb was eaten. Uh, And so, you know, unless you recognize me as the Passover lamb, as the one to whom all of the Passover lambs throughout the, the millennia have pointed, you won't have any part in me. You have to accept me as that sacrifice to which all of these pointed. It doesn't have to be at the same hour and exactly the same time. I've I've heard that same reasoning, uh, a, a similar reasoning to uh, the insistence that Yeshua has to die at the same time 
as if all the lambs were slaughtered at the same time, same time yeah. simultaneously, that he had to die at the same time. But I've, I've heard that with respect to eschatology and the fall feast, that it's going to be on Yom HaTeruah is when the great trumpet will be well, will sound. Hang on just a sec, because what you just said, Dad, about how the, the continued sacrifices throughout Passover are considered the, the Passover. So if he so, was if he was crucified on the fifteenth on the Shabbat of the fifteenth, which is mm-hmm. the first day of of Passover, then right. he then the sacrifice. I mean, if you want to take the logic that he has to be the Passover sacrifice, then technically, then technically speaking, he was he was crucified within the seven day period, making him the Passover. Right, and moreover, on the fifteenth of the month, which is the first day of unleavened bread. Okay, and we can talk about that, because actually in the first century, uh, they they said they used the first day of unleavened bread to be of the 14th and the 15th. Now, the 14th, the preparation day, wasn't a Sabbath. The 15th was. So the on the on the 15th of the month, there were not only uh, uh, sacrifices for the Passover, but there were also additional sacrifices because it was a festival Sabbath. So there were many more sacrifices offered at the temple at, for that festival day than they would have the next day and the following day until the seventh day when you also had the seventh day was also a festival Sabbath. So the first and the seventh day were festival Sabbaths, which required additional, uh, according to the Torah, required additional sacrifices. And those were all considered to be sacrifices of the Passover or the Pesach. Okay. Let's keep going. Well, I'm, I'm now. I'm wondering. We could, we could have one, one other little bit though. Is in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, right? In, um, I think it's in Sanhedrin. It's not. It's not in Pesachim. It's actually in Sanhedrin. It's in uh, Nezikin. You know, with legal uh, court civil civil case part of the Mishnah and the Talmud. It says that uh, uh, Yeshu Hanotzri was. Uh, I think what he was hung. Yes. On uh, Erev HaPesach. The, yeah, 43A, Sanhedrin 43A. Uh, so, so there's... there's. Uh, but where did they get that? Wonder, yeah, where did these, uh, these Babylonian <laughs> rabbis from, have they this? They got it from the 14ers. Hmm. They got it from the Quattrodecimans. Because the, the, the emerging church in the 3rd and 4th century split over this. Whether or not they should celebrate uh, the death of the Messiah on the 14th of the month or on the 15th of the month. You had the 14ers or the quadradecimans, and my suggestion is that the rabbis, as they were trying to begin to formulate how are we going to answer this, these Christians, uh, they began to study or ask questions of the Christians, and they told them, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was crucified on the 14th, and, that's, and that comes into the, into the Talmud. <laughs> so I think they got it from the Christians, the ones that were, had the wrong date because they didn't understand John. Okay, so um, I'm going to play another clip from Tovia Singer here. This goes back uh, once again to the lamb, uh, him being the Passover lamb. Um, and I'm not sure. Okay, this might be quiet too for the chat room. I'm sorry, you're going to have to turn your uh, speakers up for just a second. Here we go.
Okay, so let me let me sum up for everyone. What what Tobia Singer is saying is that uh, once again, John wants to make uh, Yeshua the Lamb of God, and the reason that you have him not, and he once again does uh, that, he's trying to make him the Passover Lamb uh, by not making uh, the Roman soldiers break his bones. If we saw this, uh, and this is why we don't see this detail in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they they're they're off. They didn't think that he was really the Passover Lamb. Uh, Suggestions on that or uh, thoughts? Okay. Well, first of all, it 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 the I, the uh, calling of Yeshua, Lamb of God, didn't wait for Passover. Yochanan Hamadbil, right? John the Baptizer was the first one. He saw him coming in chapter one of John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay. So John brings this up because he wants to emphasize that if it's not found in the other Gospels. In Matthew, I would say the reason it isn't is because it's a given. If if Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish um, uh, audience, it's a, it's a given. Those that have come to faith in him, they why would John just all of a sudden say he saw him coming and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God"? I mean, did he just pick that out of the air? Was that just a, a title that he he made up on the spot? No, the Lamb of God is is the the sacrifice that's given to God. In in the Torah, it says, this is my, my food, God says to Israel. When you put a when you put meat on the altar, the altar eats it. That's what the, the Hebrew says, it consumes it, but it's the word achal, to eat. Okay? So the the altar eats the meat and therefore the lamb or the, the bull or the oxen, whatever's put there, uh, is he says it's my food now i know the liberals say well that goes back to paganism where the gods ate the, no no that's nonsense the pagans took it away from the bible but that's a whole other story the point simply is is that singer is he is really <coughs> for straws here i mean he is he's just trying to find some way the fact that john speaks in one way and luke and mark and matthew uh, each speak in a different way is part of the fact that that's why we have four gospels so we get all right. of the story and we have to also uh, thinking about john John is drawing on many, many, many different themes from the Torah. Yeah. For example, he starts NRK, in Halagas, right? Yeah. It, which is like NRK, Bereshit. <laughs> he's drawing on that. He, he, uh, Yeshua says, um, you will see heaven open, angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, that's right. Jack, Jacob's ladder, right? Right. You've got, uh, Yeshua says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And later, after resurrection, they realize who's talking about it. So th- throughout John, he's, uh, he says, I am the bread from heaven. He's, I am the manna in the wilderness. Right. So John is, wants us to read the Torah and, and see these lessons, each of these little hints towards uh, Yeshua. Let and, me add a thing to that, Rob. I, I'm, con- I'm fairly convinced, uh, I, maybe I wouldn't fall on my sword for it, but I'm fairly con- convinced that uh, John wrote later. I think he wrote yeah. after the destruction. Yeah. Okay? So he is able now, he's, he's been putting together all of this progressive revelation that the others have given, including Paul. Mm-hmm. And, and he's saying now he can gather all these things together and he can make a conclusive statement. 
Now he understands why John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away. I mean, now the picture has become more full. And one last thing that just came to my mind. You mentioned earlier on, Rob, about all the Jews bringing their uh, their Passover lambs or selecting their Passover lambs and how many how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, animals had to be slaughtered. I think there were also Gentiles who brought them. Josephus seems to indicate that there were Gentiles, there were pious Gentiles who had come to faith in the God of Israel, and they too brought their sacrifices. Now, that's debated, but I think there's plenty of evidence to, to that. So you add that in, it's even more. Okay, let's move on. So I got another one from Ari Rosenberg. Once again, uh, this gentleman is a, a reform rabbi, and I, I say that he hasn't studied Greek because he tries to pronounce some Greek in this uh, in this clip, and uh, he he admits fully, I'm pronouncing this wrong. I know I am, but I don't, you know. So uh, let's give him a little grace on that. But uh, here's his statement. Secondly. The Gospel of Mark records that Jesus took bread at the meal. Now, Mark was originally written in Greek, a language which has separate words for leavened bread and unleavened bread. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, 8 reads, Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, and forgive me for not pronouncing this correctly, but I believe it's pronounced Jimmy, uh, neither with the leaven, Jimmy, of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, ajimos, of sincerity and truth. Now, if, in fact, the Last Supper had been a Passover Seder, then Mark 14.22 would have recorded that Jesus ate ajimos, the unleavened bread. Okay, who wants to oh, strike first? No. <laughs> Uh, now, wait a minute. Has this rabbi, does he actually uh, celebrate a, uh, a traditional Seder? Yes, I believe he does. He, in this okay. clip, in this so then, clip, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so then he he certainly knows that in the traditional Seder, we say a, a bracha, not only for the matzot, but also for the lechem. Right, you use the word lechem. You, you, oh, no. In, in, the Seder, in the Seder, it uses the word lechem. Yeah, lechem onid, bread of affliction. Exactly. So, so here, here's also Tim is that this this rabbi is completely ignorant of a big part of Jewish history, which is the Greek speaking Jews, yeah, uh, that thrived in the ancient uh, Mediterranean for centuries, um, who have a translation that even the early rabbis endorsed, a Greek translation of the Torah that uses artos, the word used to describe bread for the Last Supper meal that he mentions in Matthew, or, or he yeah, quotes Mark. from Mark. Yeah. Um, Artos, it's used for the showbread, or the, the mm-hmm. bread of the presence, which is unleavened, and it's also used in in, Deuter- in that same passage we were looking at, Deuteronomy 16.3, yeah. the uh, letzimoni, let lechemoni, bread of affliction, is artos. Yeah. There, there's no, it, that is a straw man, and I'm, I, I think we've seen people in the Messianic uh, world try to make that same argument well, and it it just reflects their own ignorance. Yeah, um, you know, they're, they're, it's interesting because the the evolution of the English language, which took uh, which was really brought to bear by the King James version. Okay, the the early translators understood lechem to mean food. When it says he brings forth lechem from the earth, okay, it doesn't mean that he that you go out and pick up loaves of bread. Okay, it it means, and so uh, 
it, it became common in the English language to, to say, you know, to ask somebody, how do you, how do you put bread on the table? Or, how, you know, how do you make your bread? It doesn't mean you're actually making bread like you do, Robin, uh, you know, but it means how do you make a living, right? Okay, so lechem can mean uh, all of the things that are on your table besides the things made of wheat and so forth and so on. So, and the point is that he uses artos here. Uh, and, okay, so that's a very broad term under which unleavened bread, therefore, is made more specific. So, I, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that somebody who has a training and has regularly celebrated and probably led a Passover Seder, when he comes to the word lechem, he should think to himself, whoa, wait a minute, why are we doing that? I mean, he he's really, again, he's not using... Equal weights and balances. <laughs> well, he's the, he, he's not the only one because we have Michael J. Cook from BibleInterp.com who says, curiously absent from Mark's second paragraph, and he's talking about Mark 14, 12 through 16, is allusion to any of three expected and fundamental components of a pre-70 CE Passover observance, lamb, the main food, bitter herbs, and even matzah. Indeed, not simply is the Greek word for matzah uh, absent, but regular leavened bread, artos, is present. Instructively, we find the same in Mark 14.22 and 1 Corinthians 11.23. Hey, guess what? Mark doesn't even record his birth. Was he born? Maybe he was never born. Maybe he was never born. I mean, to, to look at the Gospel of Mark and think that he has to put everything in that fits our, you know, picture, all of a sudden you're thinking, wait a minute. I mean, he doesn't even start with the birth of Yeshua. Was that unimportant to him? No. He had a different agenda than just simply writing history. And... If he was going to write history, it would have been a lot lot larger book. Okay, so here's a, another one from Tovia Singer. And this one, actually, we talked about last year, as we did the Artos as well. But uh, we're going to look at this one, too, because it's one that comes up every single year. And here we go. <laughs> Once again, this is uh, from Tovia, so it's going to be a little bit more quiet to the people in the chat room. Sorry about that. So Judas goes out to buy something. Uh, Zach Bauer, uh, I, we had a clip from him last year. He says that this would be impossible because uh, if it was the night of the fourteenth, it would be Passover. Or it would be uh, it would be a, a, a high Sabbath or a holiday Sabbath, and therefore he wouldn't be able to buy anything. Go. Well, the last thing that you sh okay, we start with this premise that the that Yeshua was without sin. The last thing that he would do, therefore, is not to break the Torah. The Torah says, you shall roast it and you shall eat it between the evenings of the 14th. Now, everyone that has ever studied it knows that an Arab comes at the end of the day, not at the beginning of the day. It isn't until the sun sets, which therefore is no longer Arab. 
Now, I know the rabbis and the later, you know, they discussed about uh, Ben Shamashim uh, between the suns and so forth and so on. But when the sun sets, it's nighttime, okay? It's Erev before the sun sets. And some would say slightly after because it's still kind of light. Okay, but it's at the end of the day. So the Torah in Exodus chapter 12 tells us that the, by Torah commandment, the they were to begin eating the lamb that was so the sacrificial lamb but by the end of the 14th which means before the sun sets between the evenings is before the sun sets traditionally uh, it was considered to be from uh, that any time when the sun began to decline towards the horizon until it went below the horizon that was between the evenings okay now because there were so many lambs, we would presume that it was going to take a little longer. They may have started their Passover Seder at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It had to be done by 6 o'clock or thereabouts because that's when most people think the sun was setting, sometime around 6 o'clock. There could have been, they could have been together for two hours or an hour and a half before the Sabbath actually began. So maybe they were missing salt or that's what the disciples thought. Maybe maybe we were missing something essential that we needed for this meal, so quick, go out and get it, because you're the guy that has the money bag. Or something for tomorrow morning's breakfast. Or whatever, yeah. Or Well, they say, or, or perhaps he's going to donate it to the poor. Uh, yeah. He's going to give charity. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Um, so, okay, we have a question. A skeptic argued the following. Mark 15.25 says that, uh, Jesus was crucified at the third hour, but John 19.14 says that Pilate presented Jesus to the Jews at about the sixth hour. Thus, it appears that Jesus was on the cross three hours before his trial. So we have this discrepancy of times. Um, within what, was the, what was the Matthew text? Uh, no, it's Mark 15.25 and John 19.14. So, and, I, and I've seen papers at the ETS and SBL on what time Yeshua was actually crucified, uh, because it seems like there's a three-hour difference at least between the gospel narratives. Well, I think the Mark passage could be understood uh, to mean it was it was the third hour when they crucified him. That is, they started the process at the third hour. In other words, he was condemned condemned to, to uh, execution. He was whipped and so forth and so on. Mark could be taking that whole section and and uh, then, you know, by the time the sixth hour comes, they're actually putting him, nailing him to the cross and lifting the cross up and putting it in its hole. There's so, been uh, there's been uh, various opinions and uh, work done on this. Uh, Rob, any opinion? I have not. That's no, I don't have an opinion. on that. Some some also say that the Romans considered the hours of the day differently than the Jews. And that's the one that I, uh, that I t t tend to favor. Um, right. Okay. Because the, the Romans uh, took it by way of when the guards would change in their uh, uh, setup, and the Jews took, took it as to when the guards would be changing uh, the, the temple guard, and it had to do with how you reckoned the day, whether you reckoned it from midnight or whether you reckoned it from an early hour of darkness in the morning or whether you reckoned it from the sun up to the sun down. 
Okay, so, and, and yeah, and or uh, whether you reckon the first hour from uh, when the sun sets, as the Jews would have done, or uh, midnight. Uh, yeah. So if the sun was setting at 6, uh, and they start the day at 1 there, and then you have the Romans starting the day at 12 o'clock midnight, uh, then you have, obviously, yes. you have, you have a six-hour six difference. difference. <clears throat> and some would say that it had to do with the first light of the of the sun coming up in the morning, where they would adjust the hours so that the guard, the Roman guard, those that were guarding through the night uh, would not have to guard longer than they normally would. And is John writing for, like, John's writing way after the fact, and he's got an, an audience that is oriented to maybe a different way of keeping time, too. So well, yeah, and, 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 and scholars have said that he would be writing towards a Roman time, whereas the Mark would be uh, more geared towards uh, Jewish thinking. Or a Hebraic you know, thinking it, of what time. I, what it, it, I think about, you know, what's the agenda here? What do we have to gain? Well, what's the gain for those? I can understand with uh, the reform rabbi that you quote or singer, because they, their agenda is clearly to teach people, uh, quote, facts that will undermine their confidence in the inspired uh, scriptures undermine their confidence in the, the Gospels as Word of God. Right. Right? I mean, that's easy. So they, they're going to, that's going to, they're like a woodpecker. They're going to keep pecking away because that's what they're driven to do. Unless, Lord willing, he will change their heart. But then when, when you have, if we look at people within the Messianic, or it sounded like one of those uh, sites was not necessarily Messianic, but still was challenging the idea that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. Um, what's the gain there? What's the gain? Um, what gain is there yeah. for that well, claim? I think I think that one of the biggest issues is is that you have people who are not believers, even, and I'm not even talking about uh, Jews. I'm talking about I've I've talked to atheists and others who uh, say that there's huge discrepancies in the Bible. One of the main ones that they'll go to is that John has a different recounting of the of the Passion than. Uh, the synoptic gospels do. So, you know, uh, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just looking at the uh, at the critical apparatus here in John nineteen fourteen. There is, there are some manuscripts. There's it's a corrector uh, of the Sinaiticus has third hour rather than sixth hour in John nineteen fourteen. Mm-hmm. So there may be some, uh, and let's see what does the Peshitta have. Uh, There's scribal variation there. Yeah, there's scribal variation. But the question right. is, is did Sinaiticus uh, change it? Well, you know, to fit the synoptics, yeah. to try to harmonize it, yeah. Uh, and interestingly, the uh, the uh, uh, Peshitta also has the third. Uh, uh, no, wait a minute. No, it has sixth. I'm sorry, sixth hour. Okay, so, so the, the, here's a question from a, a uh, one of our listeners, uh, Clint. He writes in and he says, "At what point?" And this is a question that I like because I, I want to hear uh, different opinions on this. At what point? And actually, I'm gonna. I got more quotes after this too. At what point did the traditions of the Seder begin? Four cups of wine, afikomen, etc. From Jonathan Clawen, a professor of religion at Boston University, he says, first, very little, if anything, of the rabbinic Seder practices can be read back to the early part of the first century CE. Second, Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples did not take place on the first night of Passover. And then uh, from reformjudaism.org, 
we have, Jesus could not have known what a Seder was, let alone have modeled his Last Supper after one. The elements of, of even the primitive Seder or originated decades after he died. In our oldest re- reference, uh, the early 3rd century rabbinic uh, compendium, the Mishnah, we read that Gamaliel II, the greatest rabbi of the post-destruction era, likely during the late 80s, that is certainly debatable, customarily said, whoever does not mention uh, these three things on Passover does not discharge one's duty, the Passover offering lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Uh, and thus, the core temple-centered observance mutated from sacrificing lambs into drawing upon Passover motifs to retell the Hebrews' escape from Egypt. Centuries of further embellishment and re, uh, refinement produced the full-fledged mature satyrs we know today, the kind that many modern churches adopt and adapt in re uh, reenacting the Last Supper, even though no such Seder could have been practiced during Jesus' day. I, I think there's some valid points. I, I would want to quibble on little things, but the general point, I think, is true. We, do, we don't have evidence for, in the for first century primary sources, that, uh, that give us a picture um, of what what in the you know medieval times and beyond has become what we think of as a quote capital S Seder. That's true. There's no there's no egg, there's no shank bone, right? Uh, um, it, on the other hand, it's probably true uh, that our gospel accounts of the Last Supper are probably the 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 best primary sources that we have from the first century of a Passover Seder, if lowercase s, if we don't want to use that word. Certainly, we don't, we don't know if that that term was even used. So I agree, Yeshua would not have considered a, this a Seder, because the, that is a stamp that kind of gets developed later on, you know, what makes a, a kosher Seder, so to speak. But, um, but we do seem to have multiple cups, uh, yep. and, and, uh, it, it, the Artos argument that that's leavened bread is shown to be false. All they need to know is is their Greek Torah, which had been around by you know for two hundred years already by that time, um, and it's uh, it's a meal. They're clearly in Jerusalem at Passover. Yeshua expresses time again. We're going to prepare the Passover meal. Where are we going to eat it? It's going to be in an upper room. I mean, we have all these things. Uh, we have him. Dipping bread in some sort of sop, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell us. So, it, you know, to say that, uh, I think the claim that it's not a Passover Seder is is misguided. Uh, uh, although I would, I do understand the criticisms of use of the word Seder. Uh, it and it is true that on the rabbinic sources, we don't have anything early for the rabbinic sources. The mission is earliest, as the one scholar quoted, Gamliel says, you have to mention these things. Basically, what we have is we have Passover as a time for telling a story, for having a meal together, telling a very specific story of, of redemption, right? That's what the Passover meal is. Right. And you know, over it, time, it, different groups are telling that story in different ways. It's amazing to me that the people, the, they're, they're using the, the Mishnah as saying this, he couldn't have done a Seder because the Mishnah describes the Seder this way, and that's what all the Jews were doing in the first century. Right, right. That's the problem. I mean, please, please, please read some of the uh, stuff by Neusner and others uh, and uh, just see how often it's clear 
that the Mishnah is not telling us what happened in the first century, and it's uh, it's very dubious to say that that's what's going on. Now, here's my point. First of all, when it says when the disciples come and say where should we where should we um, prepare the Passover, I don't think it means the Passover meal. I don't think they had a lot of preparation for the Passover meal. I think the big preparation was the lamb. You got to take this lamb. You got to go to the, to the temple. You've got to get the lamb. You've got to have it slaughtered. Then you've got to take it back. You've got to put it on a spit. You got to build the fire. You got to put that thing and you got to get it roasting so that there's meat able to be eaten that's not raw. Uh, you've got to be able to eat the meat by the time uh, the hour comes. Okay. So they were wondering where do we where do we do this? Okay. As far as the as far as having uh, matzah, there was plenty of bread. Uh, matzah being baked in in Jerusalem from everything that we can tell, okay? Plenty of people were preparing that. And uh, what else did they have? You know, they had some kind of bitter herbs. Doesn't the uh, Torah require us to have bitter herbs? Yes. Okay, you shall eat it with bitter herbs, okay? So basically you have the meat, the bitter herbs, you have wine, and, you know, that's essentially your meal and matzah, okay? Now, here's my question. Every time you have, for instance, in in Luke, every time you have the hour with the article, and I'm not just trying to take a, a you know a snippet out. If you look through Luke, if you look through John, every time you have the hour, it's a scheduled hour. It's something that everybody knows now is the time. Even when Yeshua says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, what is he talking about? He's talking about the predetermined time that the Father had set in place from all eternity that this should take place. So how does Luke 24, 22.14 start out? When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. So they're following a, a schedule, okay? They have a, a cup before, they have a cup after the meal, they have a cup within the meal, we know that. They dip into something, some kind of a, a mixture, right? And as we've said, artos can just as well mean unleavened bread as, as, as leavened bread. So they had those elements, and it, it says afterwards they sang a hymn. Right? Isn't that what yep. the Gospels say? Yep, that's right. Okay, okay so, so, what, so what song would they have sung? I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that the good possibility is they sang the Hallel Psalms. Right, right. And that's exactly, I mean, you have a Seder there. It's not the parallel to the expanded, very expanded. And by the way, I don't have any problem with the expanded uh, Seder as long as it focuses on the reality of redemption and the redemption that's in Yeshua, okay? I don't have any problem with having, you know, the Afi Coleman for the kids to look for. Okay, it's a, it's a late tradition as far as we know. Maybe not, I don't know. But it seems to be a late tradition. Great. It keeps the kids active and it's, it has a good illustration, you know, of, 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 of something that's broken and comes back to life. Okay. Comes back to the meal to be eaten. And this is the only time I think, are there any other times where Yeshua, it says that they're reclining together and eating a meal together? I don't think so. This is, and that's, you know, obviously, uh, you know, know, later in rabbinic, you know, there's a rabbinic tradition of reclining being an element of, of, Passover. Okay, so wait, let, now, now I think this is Philip, the uh, Philip that we uh, welcomed to our, our listening audience, uh, number 36, last, uh, last show. And uh, so because of that, I'll read, and maybe it's not, but I'll read, his, uh, I'll read his comment anyway. He says, we reach a point where many have missed the description of the four cups in the New Testament. A careful reading of the descriptions of the Last Supper, the New Testament reveal at least three of the cups by names 
uh, still used today and a possible allusion to a fourth. And now he's going to uh, give us the, what he thinks are the references to them. Each of these four cups has been given a special name by the rabbis. It is because of this we may be able to trace them in the New Testament. The first cup is called sanctification or kadush or the cup of thanksgiving. We, and we see this in Luke uh, twenty-two seventeen. The second cup is called deliverance or judgment. Could Paul be alluding to this when he speaks of drinking judgment on themselves? See 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-nine. The third cup is called redemption, blessing mentioned in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, And the fourth cup cup is called praise or restoration drunk while singing hallel probably the cup of the new covenant mentioned in Matthew 26:28 through 30 and 1 Corinthians 11:25 thoughts well it's interesting because obviously the, the idea of cup can mean a lot of things when Yeshua said uh, if it's possible take this cup from me he's not talking about one of the uh, passover cups as far as i could see uh, drink drink the cup to its dregs uh, drink it fully uh, apparently was an idiom that meant to to give oneself fully to whatever a duty uh, the person was being called, and especially if it would required suffering. Uh, I don't have any problem with saying there were three cups, uh, but I can't find them in the gospel specifically. I can find two, uh, one during the meal, one after the meal. And um, so, you know, and, and well, there's one during the meal, one... Uh, after the meal, and then one that maybe he didn't take. He said, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So uh, there may be three cups uh, identifiable in the uh, in the Gospels. I think there was a, a, a tradition of how the Passover Seder was to be conducted. After all, it had been done for uh, thousands of years. And uh, uh, so uh, I think there was a tradition. Did the, the tradition change? Yes, undoubtedly. But I think that... Yeshua and his disciples had a tradition that they followed, and I think we see it uh, at least demonstrated or represented in in the Gospels, all four of them. Well, one interesting thing, yeah, I, I agree, Tim, that it, there uh, there is some sort of basic order to yeah. to what's going on, and that's just the word "seder" sure. later. Now, is it now? Of course, as we see with many things that the rabbis, rabbis of the Mishnah do, they take traditions from the Second Temple period and tweak them, and then say, "This is this is ours. It's always been this way, right. and it we're the ones who we're the police. We'll we will let you know whether or not you fulfilled your obligation." And they become and it changes the tone of the whole thing. But in that, we do see at least two Greek words that become key to the rabbinic, what well, later traditional Seder. One is uh, afikomen, mm-hmm. which is understood to be a Greek word, uh, afikomenos, who, yeah. the one who comes. Comes, the coming one. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, many take that, you know, even though you'll see, oh, it means dessert, um, that it actually is a reference to Yeshua as a coming one, and, and the evidence in Greek uh, is taken from, I think it's Miletus of Sardis, it's like a second, mid-second, or mid-third century Mm-hmm. poem about Yeshua and tying him to Passover and it uses the word afikomenos and then another is the word karpas which is right. you know the, the parsley or the celery is the Greek word fruit right. and it is right there I mean the blessing for it is priyadama uh, it's understood as as fruit and so we can see the fingerprints of of the language of the, from the Hellenistic, Jewish Hellenistic, Jewish Greek era, 
leaves its fingerprints all the way. They're still there. The fingerprints are still there on the on the Seder today. And I think it's interesting in Mark, for instance, chapter 14, it says when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank. So it wasn't that each one had that, that they served themselves. Somehow Yeshua, as the leader, filled their cups or maybe they had a single cup and they passed it around. It wasn't just the common cup that you would have when you were eating a common meal. There's things in this in in the Gospels that indicate it was a it, it was a celebratory meal that had some traditional pattern which they were following. Okay, I got one more clip here, uh, and then we'll welcome our new uh, our new attendee. Um, but uh, this one, so every time that we that my father and I talk about uh, the Passion chronology, my dad always says. It says that they that I have longed to eat this Passover with you, or so. What does that mean? It means the Passover lamb. Uh, so let's go back to to our friend Steve Berkson and uh, listen to what he has to say about this passage, and then we'll we'll get your response. And? Okay. To me, this is your typical cherry-picking eisegesis. Read the text. Let the text speak for itself. Notice that verse 15 starts, uh, this is Luke twenty-two fifteen. starts with the Greek chi, and. This is means that we're in a narrative. It's being used typically after a Hebrew perspective, and it weaves the narrative together by what we would call in the Hebrew of consecutive. It's saying this is all concurrently happening. Okay. He said to them, I have earnestly, and he said to them, I've earnestly uh, desired to eat this Passover with you for, I say to you, another connective, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Next verse. And, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. How can you rip verse 15 out of the context and not recognize that if you're reading anything at all, even the English, but if you're reading the Greek, it is connected by these conjunctions of either chi or gar, meaning and or for. It all fits together as one paragraph. You can't rip it apart. Did you, Tim, I'm sorry, I, I, while you, I wanted to look up, I pulled up Luke 22, 7. I, I thought I had it on my computer, so I got distracted. But did you, and so I apologize if, you're, if this is repeat, repetitive for you. From what you just point uh, in verse eight, did you talk about twenty-two eight? No, where I didn't. Yeshua says, "Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it." <laughs> yeah. Or, 
or that he, he says, tell the guy with the water. The teacher says, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Right. And, and, that's, point- and it's, just, it, uh, it's just the subjunctive fago that I, yeah. That yeah. I, so that yeah. I can eat. Yeah. And um, the point that I was making, Rob, was that if you start with verse 15 and go down through 18, well, even further on, that everything is connected with, with conjunctions, either chi or gar. So it's the whole—you can't read verse 15 as though he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, and by the way, I'm not going to be able to. So I still don't understand. What's the gain that if people—I understand the gain envisioned by the anti-missionaries, like Singer and the uh, you know reform rabbi. I think, quote, I think the gain but, but is that who, they're— yeah, what are, what are the messianic? They want to find a way to reconcile in their minds the synoptics and John. And John, they're reading John saying, "There's no way out of it. It has to be that he was crucified before the eating of the Passover because of that one passage where it says they didn't go into the Praetorium because they wanted to eat the Passover." So they're wanting. So so they're wanting to assert that all four gospels. Our scripture. They're not. We, I, right. we haven't had anybody. It's not that they're saying we need to throw no. away. Yeah. John. So what they're trying to do is find a way to make the synoptics have him eat on the thirteenth, or have him not eat an actual Passover meal, just have a fellowship meal with his disciples, knowing that he was going to die. Yeah, that's. I think okay. that's their. That's what they're trying to do. Okay. Well, uh, this has been fun. Let's uh, now. I know, I know that Eric might have heard our show before, but uh, I know for a fact that this is Eric's first time into the chat room. And so, for that, we would like to welcome Eric Russell from Tacoma, Washington, to the Robin Caleb Show's listening audience. You are now one of the thirty-six coolest people on earth. Please consider yourself blessed. All right. Well, it's always been uh, it's always a fun time to have my dad on and talk about uh, the Passover chronology and the Last Supper and all those kind of things. A big thank you to you, Dad, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us and our audience. Glad to do it. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on before next year. But uh, yeah, we look forward to next year when we will find more clips of more people saying that. Uh, this was not a Passover Seder, and you can uh, talk about them again. Can I make one short statement? Of course you can. After all of the things that we've done to try to see how the Gospels all actually do fit together, the bottom line is this. We have the opportunity once again this year to celebrate the time of our redemption. Not only the history that we have in the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, but our redemption in the Messiah Yeshua, who died, who rose, who ascended on high and reigns on high today and is coming again. And so in the midst of all of these questions and somewhat controversies that we have, let us not in any way diminish the great value we have as family, as friends gathered together this coming uh, Friday evening, and we celebrate once again what we are mm-hmm. in the Messiah. Well, I yeah, that, that, that uh, brings – so my three-year-old and I, you know, I've been trying to – uh, make Passover understandable to him. So we've been reading 
straight out of Exodus in the NASB. And then, uh, so each night we'll read a chapter, and we've been going through Exodus, and so we'll talk about it, and then we'll watch, you know, there's like a VeggieTales Passover Seder, and then there's a, a Superbook uh, Exodus story, and there's the Prince of Egypt and all this kind of, so we'll watch a little bit of each one of these and say, see, this is the, this is the time, you know, this is what we've been talking about here, you know, this is that, that plague, and so on and so forth. And so we've been reading through it, and, it, and I, have to keep say, I have to keep reminding myself because it's... Uh, you know, I, I want him to understand, and obviously he's only three, but I want him to understand that this isn't just about, and he won't be able to get this probably until he's a little bit older, but it's not just about Passover. What it's really about is Yeshua and us being redeemed from sin and being taken out of Egypt. And so I keep, when I, when I was young and my dad used to say, uh, yeah, this is really about us coming out of Egypt. And when, and when God redeemed me from Egypt, and, these, and I used to think, that's so stupid. Why does he keep saying that? He wasn't, you know, it was 3,000 years ago. But now I find myself saying, when God redeemed me out of Egypt, and when God brought us out of Egypt, and, you know, when I was in Egypt and all these things, and I can already see him thinking, wait, you were in Egypt? And so, you know, we, we continue to, uh, to make this story not just about uh, the time that the people of, of Israel uh, came out of the land of Egypt, but when we as individuals were brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and redeemed from slavery to sin and brought to uh, slavery and service to the Messiah. So uh, I hope that everyone uh, has a wonderful Passover. Anything else, Rob, before uh, before we go? Nope. All right. Well, I hope everyone has a wonderful Passover, Seder. And uh, yeah, if you haven't gotten all the leaven out, of your house yet. Uh, you've got a couple of days. Jump on it. Jump on it quick. A big thank you to all of our listeners, everybody in the chat room. We appreciate you very much for joining us. And uh, welcome to all of our new listeners. If you know somebody who has just started listening to us, please send us a name and a place that they're listening from. And we would like to welcome them in Rob and Caleb's show fashion, as we did for Eric Russell today. A big welcome to you as well. And uh, so I hope that this look at uh, the Passion Chronology has helped you in some way and that your Passover Seder will be centered on our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.